Okay, well, so last week, last week we talked about Zechariah chapter 4, and one of the major lessons from last week was just this overarching, it's, it's recording, yep, thank you though, this overarching understanding uh, that it is the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to have the strength and the sustenance to maintain this mission we have to be the light of the world. And so if you get nothing out of Zechariah chapter 4, we just saw how God, the whole Trinity, comes together to provide us what is required to accomplish his mission, to be the light. So we talked about being salt and light of the world. Uh, but in order to do that, we have to continue to surrender to the Spirit. Right? It's not by our power, not by our might, not by our strength that the will of God is done. It's by his. Right? So we, we daily surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I mentioned... Uh, went on this fly fishing trip this weekend, and it was such an encouraging trip, not just because it was beautiful outside, which it was, but we had 40 men from our church do this. Uh, this, this trip was not led by any pastors. It was not organized by pastors, but it was probably one of the most spiritually attuned trips I've ever been on in my life. And I got to witness the Holy Spirit grab hold of some men, some very smart, strong, you know, capable, prideful at times men. I got to witness the Holy Spirit grab hold of them and do some really cool things this weekend, right? And so I just every now and then I think we doubt the power of God, we doubt the power of the Holy Spirit because we may not be witnessing it at work. But I saw it this weekend. Things you can't, just, just amazing. Men being convicted, men repenting, uh, men committing to live for God, to live for their wives, to be better husbands. It was just, it was a really, really incredible uh, time. Even more important, I didn't have to do any work to make it happen, uh, which is just great. I was along for the ride and got to see it all work out. So one thing uh, I'd like us to do at our tables before we completely get into this lesson is I'd like us to just be quiet for a moment and I'd like us for just 30 seconds, right? It won't be overly awkward, but I just want you to close your eyes and I'd like you to invite God to be here with you right now, right? Invite him to speak to you, invite the Holy Spirit to convict you, to encourage you and strengthen you, but invite God into this moment. So close your eyes, 30 seconds, and we'll do that. Amen. So, the reason I asked you to do that is because Zechariah 5 talks about something that is very personal, right? It talks about something that I think is something we all need to understand, but it's talking about sin, right? It's talking about what God thinks about sin and what God does to deal with sin. And so I asked you to do this. I really want God to be with you. And I want you to know as you go through this lesson that God is for you and loves you, right? But do not underestimate the power of God right now. 
Don't underestimate the fact that he can talk to you right now and he can lead you and he can do great things in you, right? Don't shut down that power. So I'm going to get into the text and this text, we're going to cover all of chapter 5 today, uh, but there's two distinct visions in chapter 5. And so I'm going to go through the first vision and we're going to pause and talk about what it means. I'm going to go through the second vision, we'll pause and talk what it means, and I'll try to bring it all together. Uh, but let me read the first vision. It's called the vision of a flying scroll. And it goes through verse 4, it looks like. So it says, again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Kind of, you know, basic there. Anyway, uh, its length is 20 cubits and it's width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both tin timber and stones. So, that all makes complete sense. Yet again, like another one of these visions, it needs no interpretation whatsoever, right? Now, but let's, so let's work through that. That was sarcasm, by the way. I know sarcasm is lost on our people, but that was sarcasm. So just as, as we go through this, what are some interesting aspects of this passage? And so as I went through it, there's some things that just help you break down this meaning. The first is, we see a scroll. And so if you think about a scroll for the people at the time, what do you think of when you think of a scroll? Scripture, Scripture right? I mean, think about it. At, at that point in time, uh, they did not have these, right? They didn't have what, we're, what we have. They didn't have this nice binding that would bring together print. They didn't have a printing press, right? So if you were to go into a synagogue at the time, you would actually see individual scrolls stacked up. And so for someone who may be reading out of the book of Isaiah, right, they would hand you the scroll of Isaiah and you would undo the scroll and you would read the word of scripture that way. So whenever we see a flying scroll or just a scroll for a moment, what, what they understand is that is the only thing they would have known to be the word of God. Okay, that is the word of God. Uh, and then it's flying, which is interesting, right? So you kind of think about like this magic carpet ride thing happening, right? You see the flying scroll. And so whenever I, I read that, what I see is a couple things. One is that if it's flying, it means you can look up and you can read it, right? Everybody can see it, right? And not only can you see it on one side, it can be read on both sides, Right, so, so, and it's traversing land, right? It has the ability to go wherever it wants to go. So you get this idea that the word of God is going to where everyone can see it, everyone can read it, and it can accomplish a large distance. Okay? Does that make sense so far? All right, it being written on both sides is important. Can anyone think of a t another place in the Bible where there is something given to the people that is written on both sides? Ten, who said Ten Commandments over here? Speak up because you're right. Yeah, it's a, was that Randy over there? The Ten Commandments. Do you remember? So, so uh, Moses goes up on the mountain and uh, the, um, uh, God writes his instructions on the, on the stone tablets. 
and it's written on both sides of the stone tablets. Right. So this idea of having being written on both sides that people would have associated very clearly with God's instructions to his people. Right. We start getting back into this idea of the Exodus. Um, the size is interesting in this too. The size is 20 cubits by 10 cubits. Does anyone know how big a cubit is? Well done, everybody. Well, I don't know why I'm teaching this class anymore. Uh, 30 by 15. So 30 feet by 15 feet, which it's not really important that it's 30 feet by 15 feet. I mean, that's big. But here's the most interesting thing about that. God, just when you read the Bible, you need to remember that there's nothing there by accident. Right? Just nothing's there by accident. It's all God's word. The 20 cubits by 10 cubits just happens to be the exact dimensions that are required in the construction of the tabernacle. So if you, if you think about this, think about the entire Exodus scene, Moses leading the people in the wilderness, right? They've gotten the tablets, they've gotten the instructions from God. They also got instructions from God to build a tabernacle, this tent, this like meeting place where God would dwell with his people while he was there, right? in in the wilderness while they were moving throughout the wilderness they would set up the tabernacle bring down the tabernacle every time they would go but God was very precise about how he wanted it constructed and the dimensions of it were 20 by 10 cubits and so you get this feeling right as you as you dissect this vision so far you've got the word of God that can be read by anyone right uh, it, it can go wherever it wants to go. It's written on both sides, just like God's commandments. And the dimensions relate to the dimensions where God was saying, I will be with my people, right, in the tabernacle. Then you get to the last part of this that I thought was really interesting. And you get this language at the very end of verse 4. It says, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So if you keep this Exodus concept, keep Moses in your mind, what's the first thing you think of whenever you hear the word consume, consuming fire? What's that? Burning bush. Burning bush, right? The burning bush. Who was talking behind that burning bush? God himself was talking behind that burning bush. God then uses, so this idea that God was in the fire, Right? comes out time and time again. It starts with a burning bush, and then it continues on throughout the, 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 the Bible, in particular in the Exodus scene. So there's this passage in Deuteronomy, chapter 9, verse 3, and it says this. It says, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you, as, he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So he shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. The idea of the consuming fire here is that God is going to go before you and is going to consume everything in your path that doesn't need to be there. And that consuming fire will pave the way for you to do what God is asking you to do. So you get all of these images going back to Moses, going back to the time of the original promise of God's people. And do you think that Jewish people at this time would have had a good understanding of the story of Moses? Very much so, right? I mean, I mean they, would have, they would have heard this. That's what I want you to understand. They would have heard these ideas coming out over and over again. So if I 
try to parse all of this together to say what do I think that they would have understood at the time it's that God is, is making sure they understand that they see that God himself, God's word, which we can understand as Christ, right? God's word is going to go before us. All are going to be able to see. God himself will be in the word who will come and dwell in it with us just like he did the tabernacle. He will not be hidden. He's going to go and sin will be judged with a consuming fire. It will be dealt with in order to pave the way for what it is that God desires. Right? So if you think about that, sin's going to be judged. Right? That's clear in this text. It will be consumed. It will be God himself who comes and does it. Right? And all of us will be able to turn our eyes and see the word, right? All of us will have this opportunity to see God, to read both sides of the scroll, right? So you just get the idea there of sin will be dealt with and God will be there, but he's made the way. Does that make sense? Is that what all you all read whenever you read this passage the first time? Matter of fact, I didn't figure that out till this morning about 5 a.m. So, uh, but, but it, it's a, I, I think it's really interesting. I want you to think the first, the first aspect of this vision being about the judgment of sin and God's involvement in the judgment of sin. Let's go now to the second vision, a vision of a woman in a basket. So starting with verse 5, and I'll read till the end of the chapter, it says, Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness personified, right? And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Again, makes complete sense. So, let's, let's dissect this one as well. So there's a basket. Baskets would have been commonplace at the time. There's not a lot to read into that there. People would have understood baskets, transporting goods, all that good stuff. Uh, the basket is going out, though. I think this is really important. The basket is going in a direction. There is movement in the basket. Uh, it's, I think it's very important to see that this basket is being expelled from God's people. Okay? Keep, keep going. So then we need to talk about what is in the basket, right? We see that wickedness being personified, capital W in this, wickedness is in the basket. Uh, I'm sure here in this men's Bible study, we all found it curious that wick wickedness was personified as a woman. Anyone else think about that just a little bit? That, 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 that hit home, you know, reality for everybody? Um, we shouldn't get too excited about that for two reasons. One... Wickedness, the noun that's being personified here, is just a female noun in the language. So it's not saying that all women are wicked. Um, uh, but then also, the basket ends up getting carried by two women. They do a good job. So we, we can't hate on women in this lesson. But this wickedness would signify civil, ethical, religious 
evil, sin, right? I want you to, I want you to, to just see that this image is everything you can imagine in society that is wicked, that is evil, that is not of God is in this basket, right, that is going away. So this would have, I think if, if you're a Jewish person at this time who understood God's law, understood the ceremonies, understood all the festivals and rituals of the time, I really think that the first thing that would have popped in your head as it related to this vision was the scapegoat. And uh, the scapegoat, hold on real quick. The scapegoat in that time was something that would occur on the Day of Atonement. Now, we all, we all have used the term scapegoat before, right? How do you normally use the term scapegoat? What's that? The guy that gets blamed, right? The guy that gets blamed. So if somebody needs to, we, we might say somebody needs to fall on the sword, who's our scapegoat, who's the person who gets blamed for this, uh, used in our, our language today all the time. But this is actually goes back to God's law. God's law calls for a scapegoat. And so if you go back to the uh, old Jewish law, the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, right, the day where all the sins of the people have this ceremony to be dealt with, um, after the, there's a bull sacrifice, there are then two goats that are brought to the tabernacle, right? And one goat, the blood will be spilt to sacrifice on the altar. The other goat, something interesting happens. The high priest, who represents all the people, takes his hand and puts it on the goat's head, right? And it's as if he is transferring the guilt of the people to that goat, and then they take that goat and they shove him out of the, out of the community, right? Not only do they shove him out of the community, does anyone know what they actually do with the goat? Yeah. Yeah, they don't just say, hey, goat, you're now free, run, enjoy. They actually, they shove him out of the community, and at the time, it really, they would, they would push him down a ravine so that he would die, right? But the idea is he is expelled out of the people. And if, if the high priest has taken his hand and has transferred the guilt of the people to the goat, what is, what's the image there? What's being expelled from the people? Sin. The, it's a ceremony, this annual ceremony, that the sin of the people is being taken out. Right? It's being dealt with, the judgment is being dealt with by the sacrifice, right? the blood that's spilled, and then it's being expelled. Right? So we see in these visions both sides, of the, both goats being represented. Right? The one where the blood is spilled, sin is being judged, and it's being expelled. And, and if so if sin is judged and dealt with and it's being expelled, what's left over in the community? What's meant to be left over? Purity, righteousness, right? Obedient to God, clean, cleanliness. Like we are pure in the sight of a holy God. Right? We, we see this all working. So in this vision, with this idea of the scapegoat, we see that sin's being dealt with. We are being made right with God. Right? We are living in a way where there's no blemish. There's nothing marring us from experiencing a life with God. So then we have these two women who come forward. And they take the basket, and they had wind in their wings. Now, I want you to just remember this. Anytime you see wind in the Bible... I say any time, I think almost every time, right? The majority of times you see wind in the Bible, it signifies the Spirit of God, right? So in this place, if you kind of keep the, the, um, the imagery going, we see the wind, think Holy Spirit, 
What is the wind doing here? Say it out loud, whoever comes to it. Yeah. The wind is the power that lifts the women who do what? They carry the sin away. Right? They take the wickedness that's in the basket and they go away. So we see this idea that God's word, think Christ, think second person of the Trinity, is going to be what comes and judges in the first vision. Second vision, we see to expel sin from the people, the power of the Holy Spirit will come and will drive it out. Right? In, in, in our language today, we call this sanctification. Right? The, the idea of being made more and more like Christ, the idea of being more and more holy, more and more righteous, right? The idea of living a sinless life, right? The power of the Holy Spirit comes into us and expels sin from our life, right? That is where the power comes from. Go back to last week, to be light of the world, not to be marred with sin, right? To be the light of the world, the power comes from what? Holy Spirit, Right, so we see the same idea come through here in this vision. Now, the last part of this second vision that I found very interesting, and I, I, I would have never come to this if I didn't get to cheat. I mean, I, I get commentaries. Y'all don't. Right? I mean, I, I get to read stuff from people a lot smarter than me. Um, the last thing was there's a stork. They had wings like the wings of a stork, which was very, very specific. Right? And so it makes you think, why stork? Why that animal, right? Like, why did they use that animal to be the image of what was carrying the sin away? And what's fascinating is that in Hebrew, in the ancient Hebrew where this would be written, the same root word that is used for the word stork is also used for the word hesed. Hesed we've learned about in here before. Hesed is the idea of steadfast love. Right? So, I don't know if you remember, like five years ago, we talked about Ruth, right? This idea of steadfast love, of God's love being a one way, self sacrificial love, right? It, it's a love that is very different from the love we understand in this world. It's a love that demands nothing in return for what it provides, right? That is different than the love of this world, right? That is God's love, His steadfast, long suffering love. So the idea of the stork having that same root word, what the image you get here is that it is God's love, right? It is his nature that is expelling the sin from his people. He's doing it because he loves us, right? And using that idea of why it is that he wants us to not have sin in our midst, it's not because of his hatred, right? Or because he's mean or because he's judgmental. It's because he loves us, right? And so all of this comes together, right? First vision being sin being judged. Second vision being sin being expelled. All in the power of God in the Trinity. All because he loves us just that much. Uh, I find it just fascinating to see the two visions put together. So there's one last thing, one last observation, though, that I thought was really important in this entire passage. And it happens to be with where they take the basket. So if you see right there at the end, let me read it. Verse 11, uh, they had just asked where they're taking the basket. And verse 11 says, He said to me to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down on its base. So Shinar, and some, uh, you, some of your translations may actually say something different. Babylon. Babylon. 
So when you hear Shinar, I want you to think Mesopotamia, I want you to think Babylon, right? And think a few interesting things to note. This area, Shinar, Babylon area, is where Abraham was, right near where Abraham was before God called him to expel himself and go to the place that God was calling him to be, right? This is the place that the Israelites had just been, right, had just been before God called them out of Babylon to bring them back into the promised land, right? This is a place where in the end times, Revelation is set up as a place where the ultimate judgments occur, right? So you see these ideas of God judging this area, pulling his people out of this area occur time and time again in the Bible. But it says something specific in here that caught my eye. It says that there will be a house built for the basket, and that basket would be set on its base. And the more and more I thought about that, it drew my attention to another famous story in the Bible that these people would have understood that also occurred in this exact same place. Can anyone think about a story in the Bible where people built a house in this place? Tower of Babel. So I want you, what happened, the story of the Tower of Babel, why did, pe- why did the people build the Tower of Babel? Yep, pride. Anything else? Yeah. 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 I think you guys nailed it. All those things, right? They want it to be God. Sorry, Jim's been waiting. They want it to be God, right? Pride, right, is the same reason why Satan fell to begin with, right? They want it to be like God. They want it to be God's. They took the power within themselves. They built the tower. They built it tall in order for them to be like God's. Right? So if you were a Jewish person at this time and you heard Shinar and you heard building, you heard those two words together, you're going to be thinking Tower of Babel. So here's the image that I got in my head. I want you to imagine that the basket, right, the basket with wickedness personified in that basket is being carried by the Holy Spirit. And it says in this passage that they're going to take it to this land where in Babylon, this land where the Tower of Babel was, and they're going to build a tower for it, they're going to build a house for it, and they're going to place that basket on its foundation. Right? What then happened to the Tower of Babel? Who destroyed it? God. I want you to imagine, let's just get this image in your head, I want you to imagine that basket of wickedness, of evil, of sin being placed at the foundation of the Tower of Babel, and then God himself bringing the whole thing down on top of it, right? How cool is that? So I, I want you to see God at work to say, not only am I going to expel this sin, but I am powerful enough to eliminate it, to kill it to bring everything down on top of it, right? I can take the sin away, right? How awesome is that? I don't know if that's actually how you should interpret this text or not. I didn't actually see that in any commentaries, but I think it's cool. So I want you to imagine that basket and the tower coming down on it. So bring it all together, right? Sin will be judged, We all have the opportunity to look upon that scroll and see Christ, right? The one who will come and judge the sin. We all have the opportunity to respond. God will provide us the power to expel the sin through the Holy Spirit, through making us whole in his life, right? And he also has power to eliminate it, to kill it. And I think as I think about about this, as it relates to us, 
the question I would have you answer to yourself quietly is, do you really believe what I just said is true? Do you really believe that God has that power? Because we're all dealing with sin in our lives. All of us are. And if you're not, you're in denial, which is yet another sin, right? <laughs> we're all dealing with sin in our lives, right? I mean, it's just, we all are. So, I mean, don't, don't think you're alone here. But we have two big doubts, I think, in our heads. And, I, and, I, and I'm not, I'm, most of my lessons I give you all, I am preaching to myself. So, I mean, we all have these two big doubts in our head. And the first doubt that I have is God doesn't actually have the power to rid me of this burden that I have. Right? He doesn't have the power. I've been bearing it for a long time, and I'm just going to keep bearing it. He doesn't have the power to deal with it. Now, it's a lie, because he does. Right? He does have the power to deal with it. But that's a doubt that creeps into our minds. And the second doubt is this, and I think this may be the one that gets us more. The doubt is where we actually tell ourselves that we'll, we're actually better off to hang on to that sin. Right? Sin, even though it's killing us, right? It's killing us. It can also be comfortable. I want you, I mean, if you look at people, I mean, just... This wasn't in my notes, so it'd be dangerous here. Um, you look at people who are in abusive relationships, right? There is a big fear of leaving that relationship. Because even though it's abusive and it hurts them, it's what they're used to, right? And they're comfortable with it, right? We get this idea that whatever it is that is that burden within us, right, not only do we, 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 might, we might think God has the power to deal with it, but we, not, we might not want him to. And that's, that's the big thing is, is Mark 10, Mark 10, Mark 10, the whole idea of do you truly trust that by giving up the things of this world, giving up our sin, giving up the things that we want, do you truly trust that God's way is better? Right? That, that he will provide you joy right? In his ways. I was just talking last week. I got a great pastoral assignment last Thursday, I believe. I got to go and talk to a bunch of upper school boys over there sitting in the gym, and I got to answer questions about sex, and that was a blast. <laughs> I didn't ask for that assignment, and I would have willingly given it up to anybody who wanted to go do that. But I remember I tried as hard as I could to put myself in their shoes whenever I was their age. And there was this idea that, you know, everybody was having sex. Like, that, like this is just what we do. Like, how can you not? Right? And I was just trying to tell, I tried to remind them that actually God's way is better. Right? Even though, even though you may not understand, even though you may not get it right now, God's way is better. He loves you. Right, that stork, the hesed, the steadfast love, he does this because he loves you. His way is better. But do not underestimate how hard it is and how much we actually want to hold on to the things that may be killing us. Okay? It's a really, really difficult thing. Sin tends to compound itself in our life as well. One sin leads to another, which will then lead to another, and we think we, think we can control it. You know, we've talked about that in here before. We think that, you know, the little lion that's out there is a friendly little lion that we can pet and, and tame, and it can be, you know, it can be a good lion. 
right? But sin's a line that wants to devour us. And you actually can't control it. And it will devour us. And so we have to be super, super intentional and understand that we must depend upon God to eradicate it. Absolutely eradicate it. I heard a story this weekend from a, a, a different pastor. He was talking about somebody in his congregation who um, had gone down a road of sin and it eventually led him to an affair. And he confessed to his wife and his wife was not convinced that he wouldn't just repeat the behavior. And so he, he got told that God could conquer his temptations. God could conquer his lust, his sin. And so he went to every place in his life that had led him to that affair, every little place in his life, and he had God take it over. Right? His, his closet in his bedroom had been a place of sexual lust. Right? And so he went to his closet, and he turned his closet into the place where he reads his Bible every morning. And God conquered that place. Right? His car had been the place where he had texted the woman he had had an affair with. That's where he would go and hide, right, to text the woman. And so then his car turned not from the place where he would text the woman, but his car turned into the place where he would go pray. And God conquered that place, Right? I want you to see that God has the ability to conquer, to conquer your sin. And that by trusting in that, his way will be better. Don't let that doubt creep in your mind. Uh, my prayer today, I'm going to pray uh, Psalm 30, just as our prayers we go out. But I would actually encourage you guys, after I pray this psalm, uh, to just spend some time at your groups. And, you know, to the extent there's anyone in your group who wants to be vulnerable, do it, right? Talk about it. If there's anything you need prayer for, ask for it. One thing I noticed this weekend with those 40 guys is that it took about 25 minutes of us talking about nothing before we talked about something, right? And that 25 minutes was normally sports, politics, work. And then we finally had one guy who had the courage to talk about something important. But everybody really wanted to talk about the something, so my encouragement to you would be skip the 25 minutes of nothing. Skip it. We all know why we do it because this is super uncomfortable for all of us, right? Skip it. If there's someone who wants to talk about something, let them talk about something. I agree. I agree. The easiest way to know what is right is to keep embedded in the word. The, the illustration I know I've used in here like five times, but it, it's easy to understand, right? U.S. Secret Service. Whenever they're trying to look at what is a counterfeit bill, they don't teach them how to know what is counterfeit by showing them lots of bad counterfeits. How do they teach them how to know? They study day in and day out what the real thing looks like so that when they see something that's not the real thing, they know it. Right? God's the real thing. Right? That's, why we, that's why we engage in the Word. So let me pray for us. I'm going to pray by reading this psalm. And then you guys feel free to stay around for a few minutes and chat. Um, and we'll go from there. All right? All right, let me pray. Psalm 30 says this, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, 
and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong and you hid my face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Amen. Thank you, guys.